Hello and welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with writers who have earned their independence. This week on the show, I speak to Jesse Brown, who is a Canadian journalist and media critic, and the founder of a podcast network called Canada Land. Canada Land is really interesting because it's supported mostly by its audience through payments, and it's proudly and fiercely independent. I had a really great conversation with Jesse. Uh, He is a wise man of media, and he had lots of interesting thoughts about independent publishing, and I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. Thanks for listening. Okay, Jesse Brown, thanks for coming on the Substack podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. I wanted to start off by talking about this magazine you started uh, when you were in high school. I believe it was called Punch. Um, What was it that gave you the journalism bug at such a young age to go and start a magazine like that? I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I was writing a column in my school's newspaper and was probably a fairly cliched, angry teenager uh, who also, it wasn't just, you know, anger. It was also like a Mad Magazine inspired kind of like desire to make fun of people and and, and to make fun of the authorities. And um, I never really thought of myself as getting into journalism. I just thought like this is like a fun way to, you know, write subversive and, and hopefully funny things. And, uh, my, my, my school newspaper kicked me off at a certain point. Uh, the, the, the administrator who was in charge of overseeing the school newspaper said, you know, the school's newspaper is supposed to be, uh, cheerleading for the high school. It's supposed to be nice stuff about the high school. <laughs> um, and we, you know, th- this isn't really what we're looking for. And I was, I, and, you know, my- and you're yeah. like, no, that the high school is rotten and corrupt. It needs to be stopped. <laughs> exactly. That's when I kind of got on my high horse and said, this is censorship of the worst order. And so, uh, you know, that basically was the impetus for uh, like, all right, well, what if what if I did this? What if I started my own newspaper and I got a bunch of friends to contribute to it? And we got uh, we, we surveyed 100 students and we did a report card of the teachers and that's what got us into the most trouble that like the fact that we were printing s- the names of teachers in a newspaper and giving them like, you know, most of we gave them B's and, you know, a few A's, but there were, there was an F or two and the principal uh, overreacted and, you know, banned the newspaper and, you know, sent threatening letters to the parents of my contributors and sent letters. We actually had advertisers. I, I didn't want to just do it out of pocket. So sent, sent letters to the, uh, you know, the businesses that advertised with us and it backfired on them. I mean, the businesses gave us money because our whole angle was that this was the unofficial underground newspaper of, of our high school. So getting an angry letter from the principal just showed them that it was working. And, uh, and then it got the local media involved and suddenly, you know, this one high school's newspaper is like getting written about in the local alternative news weekly. And then the, you know, CBC radio or public broadcaster here uh, had me on to kind of debate my principal. And, and that just led to the, <laughs> the whole thing grew to a city, a citywide underground newspaper. How'd that feel as a 17-year-old? You must have felt like a bit of a big shot at that point. Oh, it was the worst thing that could have happened for me. Yes, I got a, hu- <laughs> a huge sense of my own importance. For, I mean, you know, it, look, a, a lot of the frustration that, that I felt and that a lot of people feel at that age is that you feel um, invisible or you feel angry about, you know, things, uh, the way things are playing out, you know, a mixture between the way authority, you know, works or, or even just socially how things are, you know, like the world is revealed to you at that age and it's not a fair world. And you feel like you're just, you, you are powerless and invisible within it. And all of a sudden I realized that just by talking about it, you actually could empower yourself. And people really like, they cared about what we had to say and they were mad at us for what we had to say, or they were excited about what we had to say, but like just saying it gave us, uh, and there really wasn't us because there were just a group of people writing this stuff every, every issue. We, we, we suddenly had quite a bit of power and then, you know, music labels would send us free albums and tickets to things like you really got a sense like, wow, power of the press. It's pretty, pretty incredible. And it's not out of keeping with the sort of independent spirit you carry on today. Was it a formative experience in, in terms of deciding how you were going to uh, conduct the art of journalism? It was, though I really resisted it. I mean, even as I was doing it, it always felt to me like this was this kind of um, subversive, um, 
experiment. Uh, on the one hand, I, I looked at it as almost like kind of like comedic performance art, the kind of stuff that I was into, like from being into like Mad Magazine as a kid and a lot of comedy and Saturday Night Live and stuff like that to then getting into like underground comic books. My, my sensibility was much more um, about satire and, and, you know, thumbing my nose at authority rather than the ideals of good journalism, you know? And so though I was experiencing a certain kind of power of the press moment with it, uh, and, and, and I was getting like, you know, like a journalism school gave me this award that they had previously only given to career reporters. And they invited me to come attend this journalism school. And then, you know, Toronto star gave us a reporting award. I was given all kinds of encouragement to like actually take myself seriously as a reporter. And, you know, a local paper wanted to, to pay me to report, and I, I, I still thought like this was just like a fun experiment and a fun project, but my destiny lies in making animated films and, you know, doing comedy and things like that. And so I, I really resisted the idea that I was ever going to be a journalist. And it, it was it, like almost like five or 10 years it, it took me to realize, A, that I'm not a very talented cartoonist and 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 I am good at irritating people. And, and then a little bit longer than that <laughs> to realize that you know, there's only so much I wanted to prank people and write funny, humorous pieces making fun of the media. At a certain point, uh, I discovered that I wanted to, to tell stories that were not ironic or that were not in the vein of satire. And and uh, I kind of like, you know, discovered what was always clear to anybody watching what I was doing, which was that this is what I should be doing and that uh, reporting on stories and doing exposés and investigative work and, um, and analysis and, and criticism is what I'm good at and what I should be doing. But it, it took me a long time, you know, given how early I came to it, I didn't really come back and, and take it seriously as a profession until, you know, like 10 years later. Yeah. So w at what point did you just give up and say, ah, okay, I'm going to be a journalist. Uh, what, what year was that? I would say something something like uh, 2004, 2005. So, you know, that like the basic way it went down is I, I went and did my undergraduate education and, and was making films and cartoon animated films. And um, we got some like government grants to make an animated film after university. And I started to write, you know, for a documentary class, I did a series of media pranks and... Um, you know, that came to the attention of, uh, you know, in Canadian media, the old fashioned way of getting a job is nepotism. And I'm no exception. My uncle was a uh, editor at uh, Saturday Night Magazine and said, oh, we're looking for a humor column. Why don't you do media pranks for us as a columnist? And I, I was a great job. I was getting paid to do things like, m you know, make up a fake lad magazine that rather than being, you know, you know, Maxim for the guy who's got a sports car and a six pack. It was a uh, stew magazine for the adequate man. You know, if, if you're just sort of <laughs> like, you know, the, if, if you're kind of like aiming for the attractive girls, less attractive friend and, and, you know, you make your money through being a, uh, you know, a Guinea pig for medical research and, you know, just like getting by, um, it, you know, so we, we would put out a press release that this was a real magazine and my name was Stu and the media would fall for it. And they would, <laughs> they would interview me as Stu. And, uh, you know, so it was just kind of this like, uh, kind of punk, uh, you know, experiment to see if I could get reporters to fall for these very absurd lies. And, and yet I was actually like acting as a reporter in documenting my own hoaxes and, and still, this was just a way to get paid to do fun stuff and, and, and to fund my lifestyle in Montreal, which was very cheap as a, as a aspiring animation filmmaker. So it wasn't like, it was this very winding path. And then, you know, uh, Michael Enright at the CBC was reading that column. And then, he invited me to do similar humor pieces for him. And just around that time is when, as I was working on animated films, I discovered this American life, which, which then it was like pre podcasting. So you could, you could get real audio archive files of this American life. And that completely changed my mind uh, and changed my whole perception of what it was to be a reporter to tell stories. Um, you didn't have to be this sort of like voice of authority. You're listening to the news. I'm giving you what happened. Instead, it was this very human, and now it's, it's very common, but at the time it was totally revolutionary to hear people talking about serious topics in a very human way. And, you know, I had been spending years making one story and here they were putting out three of these beautiful audio movies every week. And I thought, 
I, that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to be an audio storyteller. And, uh, I was sort of able to parlay my opportunity to do humor pieces with, with, for Enright into getting commissioned by CBC to actually go on assignment to do documentaries, audio documentaries. And I, I fell in love with the medium of radio and reporting for radio and writing for radio. And, you know, very shortly thereafter I was working at CBC and then I was hosting shows for CBC and that, that, that's sort of the, uh, the nutshell version of the, of the story. Okay, so you joined the CBC, and what was your life like there? I sort of had a dream job that I probably would have happily done for years and years, where my job was split between, initially my job was split between um, producing segments for uh, Michael Enright's show, where I would find interesting people for him to interview, and I would book them, and I would, you know, write the questions and give him research materials. But then I would get to go and make my own stories. And I, you know, I would go, I went to New Orleans after Katrina, or I went, uh, you know, to Winnipeg to, to do like the sort of like family history of the, a century of Jewish class struggle as seen through two competing men's poker clubs, you know? So <laughs> this really, uh, I was able to do a really idiosyncratic, uh, uh, first person journalism where I had resources to, I was getting paid a full-time salary to travel around, uh, the world and, and tell stories and talk to people. And I, I just discovered how wonderful it is to be a journalist. Like the, I've always loved travel, but to show up in a city and rather than say, well, where, where's the best sandwich or what's an interesting museum to have this license to walk up to any stranger and ask them about the most interesting and the most important things in their life. Um, was such a privilege and, and the fact that people would actually just open up and share that with you and you would have these experiences that you would never have, um, you know, and, and then figure out how to, how to tell that in an evocative way. And I, I fell in love with, 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 with the practice of it. And, um, the, the, the only thing was that at CBC, I, you know, I started working there at a very trepidatious time. It was always a trepidatious time to be working there. Uh, there all, but it was under, under, in the Harper years and there were budget cuts and the, you know, there was a, a lockout, all sorts of labor unrest and also just a very unjust, um, caste system whereby some employees had jobs for life and were kind of unfireable and other employees had to be hired back, uh, every month in order to keep their job. And so... I, I kind of was um, there for like uh, probably under a year going from one month contract to three month contract. Everything was going well. My, my work was very well regarded, but there was no steady employment. And that, that forced me to be more ambitious quicker than I would have otherwise been. The only way to keep employed there, essentially my contract ran out when somebody came back from a secondment or from mat leave or something. And I was told, you know, you could either kind of leave or you could pitch your own show. And I didn't necessarily think I was ready to host my own show on, on national radio, but it was the only way to keep a job. So I pitched a show and they took it. And so I found myself hosting my first show um, a, a, a lot sooner than, than I think I otherwise would have. But maybe it was a good thing. It, you know, it, it kicked my ass to, to, you know, to, to come up with something and to build those skills. And um, this is a pretty, yeah. this is a not just an ordinary show, right? This is a pretty colorful show in terms of the topics it covered. Yeah, that's right. It was um, it was called The Contrarians, and the idea was a show about unpopular ideas that just might be right, where each episode I would um, basically take on an idea that I didn't even agree with necessarily, but entertain the possibility that it was correct. And it was sort of like, you know, thesis, ant antithesis, synthesis, where I would say, okay, um, you know, sometimes it would be kind of like, uh, you know, and this was sort of in the pre-Trump when things weren't quite so divisive and, and it, it felt like more fun. I think it would be very different to make the show now. But I would look at something like, um, okay, multiculturalism in Canada, we like to think we're this incredibly wonderful multiculturalist you know, country. But in fact, most people have very little to do with people of other cultural backgrounds. We just eat each other's sandwiches. Mm. You know, like that's that, that's what it's all amounted to is that we have, uh, you know, greater options for uh, for ethnic cuisine but it hasn't actually impacted our lives. And I, I would try that idea on for size and then look at, well, here are the ways that actually is working and then come to some kind of, um, you know, through sort of like a personal journey thing, but talking to experts, looking at research, having conversations, and then interspersing it with these little comedic segments. Um, it was a lot of work. It was a very fun show to do. And it was it was kind of positioned to tweak the sensibilities of the, the you know, 65-year-old left-leaning CBC listener and to, and to challenge their their preconceptions and prejudices as much as anything. And, you know, it worked. There was quite a bit of, uh, you know, it, we stirred the pot and, and um, you know, uh, it was, it, I, I, I was happy with how the show went. I mean, it's just interesting to think about it today now that everything has become so divisive. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I wanted to move in that direction because I, I know you caught some heat from that show and I, I've read somewhere that you thought it actually affected some of the response to that show and what happened uh, uh, subsequently when you went on to be a, a tech blogger for Maclean's, which is a, a major national magazine in Canada. You've said that it actually became hard for you to get freelance assignments because of uh, some of the uh, controversy surrounding your previous work. Is that true? You may be conflating. I mean, there, I, I've been denied work for various reasons at various <laughs> times. So let, let, the, get uh, straight uh, out then. <laughs> sure. The prob- Okay, so the fallout for the contrarians was that um, – the show succeeded, and I believe even you know by all the ways they measured it: audience uh, feedback, uh, audience numbers, and just the internal you know postmortem review of was this a good show or not. Uh, CBC concluded that this was a good show. Um, however, you know, arguing for these uh, contrarian points of view within the public broadcaster forced me into a lot of conflict with my colleagues there. Um, and so, you know, there were there were shows that I think were you know, arguing for things or, or the conceit of the show was that we were going to argue for things that I don't agree with at all. What one was, uh, for example, feminism, you know, we always hear feminism is dead, feminism, feminism is dead. Feminism, fe- feminism isn't dead. It's just complete. It achieved its goals. Let's move on. I don't believe that at all, but uh, that was what we looked at for one episode. Needless to say, uh, producing that episode with some uh, colleagues at the CBC who consider themselves uh, feminists uh, created quite a bit of controversy and conflict between us. So I, I sort of had this like I was burning every bridge, like every you know I, I was adamant that we had to in earnest argue these positions and you know for the portion of the show in which we were entertaining them, and the process of making the show was. Really really hard. And I think I alienated myself from a lot of people there. Um, and I was given these mixed signals because, uh, you know, management was go f- was saying to me, go further, challenge us more, be more aggressive, be more edgy. They love that word edgy. But then on the ground, my day-to-day experience was that there was a lot of, um, you know, and it, legitimately a lot of people felt like I don't want to give credibility to these bad ideas. I don't want to work on a show that is actually entertaining some of these ideas. They shouldn't be entertained. Um, so when it was done, I was told flat out, like the show was, was a good show, but it was too hard to make and there was too much conflict and we're not making it anymore. And by the way, there's no new con- contract available for you mm. um, on, on the show that you had been working. So I, f- I felt like I'd been kind of set up, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'd been asked to play this role of a contrarian at my, at my own professional detriment. Um, and so I sort of spent a year, uh, banished from the CBC and then I came back to host a tech show. Um, not all of the chapters of my career are quite so interesting and filled with conflict as, as you know, <laughs> basically I went off and formed a freelance career for myself where I, uh, you know, I, I worked for CBC again and then, you know, that ran its course. And then I took the show to TVO, which is another public broadcaster here. But then I was writing for Toronto Life and McLean's and various newspapers. And I just spent like, you know, 15 years when it's all said and done doing what I do for different places. The next, the next point at which I became a bit of a hot potato was, or at least where I couldn't find work was when I was coming to the end of a five-year stint as a tech journalist. And I decided that what I wanted to do was cover the media. And I, I was really uh, admiring everything from on the media, the NPR show, to The Daily Show, mm-hmm. which was satirizing the media. Uh, I, I admired David Carr, who wrote about the media for The New York Times, the late David Carr. And so I said, you know, we don't have anything like any of this. For Gawker, I liked what Gawker was doing. And, and, and you know, again, from kind of a subversive punk rock, just thumbing their nose at uh, the rich and the powerful and exposing secrets. And I, 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 there are all these different approaches to covering the media. Um, and there was nothing, no one was doing any of it in Canada. And I started to pitch a newspaper column or a new show or a radio show or a TV show or, you know, anything, even just standalone stories about media criticism. And no one would hire me to do this stuff. Uh, and that's what led to me breaking out on my own and, and starting Canada Land. Right. And I want to get to Canada Land uh, eventually. But first, the, the idea of being a media critic and trying to fill that vacuum in Canada, why was that important to you? I, I I feel like it began as just uh, I go through these sort of five year cycles where um, I lose interest in what I've been doing and I, I I start to think about what if I could start covering something else or work in a different medium or do or you know I I kind of have these these, these five year phases and so part of it was just natural like it seemed like oh I I I'm a I'm an interested consumer 
of that kind of media. And I think I could probably do it well. Um, and then when you notice that there's an opportunity because no one's doing it, you know, the, the idea gets a bit more of a, you know, itchiness. You're kind of like, wow, I really want to do that. I could, I could be the only person doing it. And then as soon as people tell you, no, that's when I'm like, oh, well, then I have to do it. Right. Um, what, you know, and, and it just became this thing where I would, uh, you know, I'd be filled with these sort of, you know, kind of bitter resentments and be talking, why did this person reject it? Or why did this one not, you know, return my email? And finally my wife just said like, you're either going to have to do this or, or just shut up about it. Cause <laughs> it just became this, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, this point of contention or just this like little, uh, you know, uh, obsessive compulsive thing where, you know, you, 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 uh, that's how you know that something's worth doing. I think when you can, you kind of can't kick the, you know, the itch to do it. And it sounds like the sort of thing that you can't really do well or honestly, or with full integrity, if you are owned by an existing media institution. Um, so is this, is this one of the reasons that you decided to start Canada land, uh, which for listeners who are not in Canada, by the way, or haven't come across it is a network of sort of podcasts and commentary, uh, in particular about, uh, Canadian media. Um, is that a fair way of describing it in the meantime, actually? I, yeah, that, that's, uh, certainly how that, how it started. Uh, now we're doing, you know, everything from like, you know, food shows to, uh, you know, just like politics podcasts and things, but yeah, the, 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 the core mission of Canada land was media criticism, right. the independence thing, the, the, I, I agree that, um, doing it independently is the ideal way to do it. But to your question of like, is that why I pursued it independently? Yeah. Oh no, I would mm. doing it independently was terrifying. And it was also <laughs> for somebody who, you know, ups and downs, but I had been, you know, making a living for 15 years as a professional media contributor and a reporter and storyteller. Um, so to put out a podcast for free was very humbling for me and, you know, felt like I was sort of demoting myself to an amateur level. So I, I would have accepted very gladly the conflicts and cons the conflict of interest of being a media critic who is employed by a big media company had any big media company been willing to hire me to do that, mm. you know? And, and, you know, I think that people like, you know, on the media is an NPR, uh, production and, you know, uh, or, or it's on NPR and it's, I think from W, uh, what be easy. Anyhow, one of those stations, the, 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 one of the big NPR stations and, and, um, you know, David Carr was employed by the New York Times and he was criticized. So it can be done, but it, it, it is a problem. It is a problem when you're trying to um, when you're trying to maintain some independence as you criticize your own field. Uh, and it is a much bigger problem. Some of your non-Canadian listeners uh, should know in Canada, because in Canada, the media is incredibly small and insular and interconnected and perhaps incestuous. And, you know, it, it's concentrated here in Toronto. It's even concentrated in a couple of different neighborhoods in Toronto. And, you know, my bosses at the CBC were married to people who worked for the Globe and Mail, like literally these, you know. The, the, the connections were just, it was impossible to think that you could do, you could not do Canada land from the CBC or from the Globe and Mail or, or even from the National Post. Mm. Like you, you, you could not do the, the kind of independent work that we did. Mm. So it, it turned out to be a blessing that I was, you know, <laughs> shown the door at, at, at every place I pitched it to. Right. And you said that you're starting the, when you started, you felt like it was kind of like a demotion, like you're starting a free podcast. So what was your reaction to that feeling? Well, I think that it prevented me, it, it prevented me from pursuing it for months. You know, I, I really felt like I, you know, I'm a professional and my work is worth money. And unless some, you know, newspaper editor or broadcast executive sees fit to pay me for this work, I won't do it. And, uh, that led to me not doing it. And so I really was forced with this, you know, you're going to either have to give it away for free or not do it at all. And, um, I, I only wish that I had the courage to pursue it earlier. And this was before it was, you know, it's getting more common for people to find ways to make money via, mm. you know, crowdfunding. But at the time there was no one, um, in, in Canadian journalism or really, I don't know, in journalism as a whole, if anyone was making a living from any of these new models. Um, so it really felt like a leap of faith to, to, uh, set off on my own. And, you know, even in the medium of, of audio, right. Uh, this was before the podcasting boom, you know, so I had been a, a national FM radio host on public 
public radio, which is in Canada, the CBC is the dominant radio station in, in most of the country. So to be giving away a free podcast that I was literally going to be recording from my bedroom, um, felt like, wow, uh, how I have fallen from the days in which I recorded from the headquarters of the CBC uh, at their broadcasting headquarters in, in downtown Toronto. So, uh, you know, I, there was no small amount of, um, you know, I was, I was ashamed to do it. I, you know, it was very, very humbling to, to do it, but uh, I wish, I wish I'd done it sooner. Yeah. If looking back now with the uh, benefit of hindsight, uh, what would you have said? Uh, what would you say now to that Jesse of a few years ago? Yeah, get over yourself. You know, uh, no nobody could care less. Uh, I, you know, I thought that there was some sort of you know jury um, that, of of my peers or society that would be like, didn't you used to be a national radio host mm-hmm. and look what you're doing? No one, no one gave a damn. And uh, if there were a few people who were glad to see you know something negative, uh, those people don't like you anyway. So why do you care? What you know, it it, it was uh, the better things that have happened to me in my life have happened because I've uncharacteristically humbled myself, <laughs> and uh, you know, out of necessity. In, in, in this case. So I, I, I only, like I say, I only wish that I'd done it sooner. So how did you get that off the ground then? How did you get uh, Canada Land uh, from being a free podcast thing to uh, starting to look like a business? So I basically gave it away. I, I put it out for free once a week. And and the one, um, you know, I, I, I set some parameters for myself and the, I said, I'm going to give this a year. And I'm going to treat it like it's a job, even even if no one's paying me for it. It's going to it's I'm a professional broadcaster, so it's going to come out at the same time every week, and and just like when I worked at the CBC, you, you do your best to make an amazing show, and sometimes the guest the guest cancels or you can't get a good guest, and you make a show you make the best show you can. Sometimes you make a show that you're not even proud of, and you put it out and you grit your teeth because that was when the show goes to air, and the show must go on. The show has to come out. And I struggled in the early episodes to find guests because, A, there was no sense that anyone was even listening to this thing. So why anyone would, would, you know, give up their time to be interviewed. And the conceit of the show was we're going to get together and we're going to talk trash. We're, we're, we're going to criticize our peers, our colleagues, uh, the companies that we work for. Uh, we're, we're going to speak the, the, the real truths that journalists speak when they get together for beers after work. So I was asking you to, you know, if you were a working journalist in Canada to come and endanger your career for nothing. And, uh, you know, no big surprise. I had a lot of difficulty getting people to do that. So I was relying on favors and people would come on and they would not really give me what I wanted. And sometimes I would just find guests who weren't really media people at all. Um, just, just get the best show I could out, try to find something interesting to talk about. And little by little, you know, if, if you found people at a point in their career where the, where the, the desire to, to tell the truth, which is strong amongst journalists, overcame their, their self-interest, like perhaps when someone was laid off and they just felt like people need to know what I just experienced. Um, bit by bit, I'd have these breakthrough episodes where somebody would actually come on and, and do what the show was built to do. And then something very unexpected happened, which was, uh, because the show was only envisioned as a chat show, like a, like an interview show where I have those kinds of afterwork conversations. I never imagined I would be using the show to do original journalism, but because there was nowhere to bring scoops, uh, actual exposés about things that were happening in the Canadian media that shouldn't be happening because no one else was really reporting on that stuff. People started giving me, you know, manila envelopes or anonymous tips, mm-hmm. or, you know, they would tell me who they were, but they would ask to give me the tip on background or off the record. And I started to be in a position to publish articles on the website about things like, you know, the the lead anchor for the CBC's national newscast, Peter Mansbridge, is probably the most famous, um, you know, news anchor in Canada, yeah. was um, he was accepting like $20,000 paychecks from the Petroleum Producers Association for speaking engagements. The oil sands, the Canadian oil industry, is probably one of the most contentious and controversial news stories that he was covering as a journalist. And he was moonlighting as a contract employee for the Petroleum Producers Association. Um, so stories like that and, and stories of editorial boards being overruled by publishers within newspapers, like really, um, egregious abuses of power, conflicts of interest, things like that started to be the kind of information that people would, would, would send to me. And I started to report on it. And then the the show became 
a show you had to listen to if you if you worked in the Canadian media. And um, how far into the and, life of Can- yeah. of Canada Land was uh, this happening? I would say about six months in is when uh, something like six months in is when I got my first really uh, you know a big scoop. And what and uh, it, it, yeah. and what, what were you doing on the financial side to support it at that point? By six months, I, early on, I had one sponsor who didn't really cover costs, but it was, you know, Fresh Books was the founding sponsor and uh, God bless them because that also helped me overcome my, uh, oh, I don't want to be an amateur. So mm. at least, I didn't, you know, even more than I needed the money, I just needed like something professional on this, you know. So anyhow, that sponsorship ran its course and ran out. So after six months in, I was just like, I was in a really weird position because the show was a success by a lot of measures. Uh, you know, six months in is when those those scoops came and when the scoops came, the, the listeners came. So all of a sudden I actually, I, I knew it was working, you know? I mean, we were doing like, by the end of year one, it was up to 10,000 listeners. So, you know, it was at like five or 6,000 listeners at the six month mark. And, um, and more than that, the feedback on social media, Twitter, email, and the, the amount that the show was being spoken about by people in the industry and the willingness of people to come on the show who hadn't been willing to come on before, I knew the show was succeeding. I knew it was working. And it was so ironic because the show was finally succeeding right when it was a complete loss. And because it was succeeding, I was putting more and more time into it. So it was becoming my full-time job and I wasn't, I wasn't getting paid anything. I, I had just become a dad. Like, you know, this was not a tenable mm. situation. So it was a really weird moment where I felt like, wow, like I'm, I'm probably more listened to my audience amongst my peers is greater than it's ever been. Um, my name is known to more people in the industry than ever before. And I'm out of work. And that's, I think you referred to this earlier. That's when, you know, I knew that, that criticizing the media would mean criticizing McLean's who I was still on, on contract as a blogger for. And it would mean criticizing Toronto Life who I was writing a column for. And lo and behold, those contracts went away. You know, and, and I was left with no income at a certain period of time. Like the show, the podcast was taking off and I had, I had no income. So what, what was your response to that? Like, how do you deal with that situation? Uh, panic, you know, <laughs> and, uh, like, you know, you know, it, it was weird because I, 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 I knew what to do if it had been a failure. Like basically my plan was if this thing was a complete failure, I would leave the industry. I was ready. I was ready to leave journalism. I mean, journalism has been, you know. I, I entered journalism as journalism started to collapse as an industry. So, you know, uh, I felt like I'm going to, I'm going to give a year to this Canada land thing. I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. And if at the end of this, it's a failure, I'm going to leave the industry and figure out another way to make money. So it was weird because it wasn't failing. It was succeeding, but I was making no money. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I, I had a problem that I needed a solution for. And I was looking at like, can I, now that it's a success, maybe now I can sell it to a radio station or something but uh, I knew that there was this audience that cared about it a lot and they cared about my independence. And it was a listener who actually said to me, have you heard of this thing, Patreon? Mm. And, uh, and that's when I figured out, okay, this, this could work. And so now uh, I'm looking at your Patreon page. You've got uh, 3,911 patrons paying uh, an aggregate of $18,800 a month. Is that enough to run the business on? Uh, that plus we get, uh, about as the same amount of money from advertising at this point. So, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, it was a dream to get paid anything, you know? And then I, I, I had my rewards set at like, okay, if you pay me this much, it'll cover my costs and I'll keep making the podcasts. If you pay me this much, it becomes my full-time job. Mm-hmm. And that's about as far as I dared to dream. And, you know, just because all of the crowdfunding you know, uh, how to guides you read will tell you, you should, you should include a moonshot. You should say like, if this goes totally bananas and, and, and this is a viral campaign that everybody loves, what's your, what's your greatest wish in the world? So I, I think I said, if I get $10,000, I'll start a company. It'll be a podcast network. I'll hire other people. Mm. And, um, within, I think it was four months we hit that goal. So, you know, this is, you know, this has exceeded my, like literally it it exceeded my wildest dream because I actually had to write down my wildest dream and we're well beyond that now. So how did, how did you get that earliest traction? Like you already had your built in audience and some people just decided to pay right out the gate because they love you. But how did you grow it from there? And how did you convince more and more people that they should support you with their dollars? By continuing to prove that we're worth it. I mean, I think it's it's a beautiful model for journalism. Like when we 
when we do well, when we break a story that's important to people, more people become our our subscribers, our patrons, our, our supporters. When we do poorly, uh, as every media organization does, when we get something wrong, or when we when we're uh, offensive in, in in a way that I think uh, we we regret, you know, when we make mistakes, we lose money. Um, so we are directly accountable. And every year, we sort of have an NPR PBS model where we don't bother you with crowdfunding messages until p- pledge season. So we spend a month a year, really hitting it hard. And then we just let people just enjoy the content for the rest of the year. So every year when we, when we really implore people to open up their wallets, we make a case for everything we've done in the past year. We have a transparency report where we list all of the stories we broke, where we list all of our internal practices and how we treat our staff. Uh, we tell you what we did with your money. And then we tell you what we'll do if you give us more money. So last year it was, if you, you know, if you, get us to this next level, we are going to do a whole new investigative series about Thunder Bay, which is a, um, a city in, in Canada that has the highest hate crime and, and the highest homicide rate in the country and has terrible problems and terrible uh, scandals at the highest levels and has tragedies concerning the indigenous youth population. We're going we're gonna to go there and we're going we're gonna to tell you the story of this city. And our patrons stepped up and said, yes, we want that. And they basically ordered that show by increasing our overall support. So every year we need to, we need to prove that we kept our promises uh, in order to maintain the patrons who already gave us money. And then we need to, if we want to grow and we were, we're trying to grow consciously and not just grow for the sake of growth, but if we have things that we want to do that we don't have the resources to do, we pitch them to the world and the world tells us whether or not they want us to go and pursue them. And how, how far do you want to take this? Do you want this to be a kind of mainly supporter funded enterprise that grows into something huge what are your ambitions i don't want to grow like i say i don't want to grow just to grow Uh, i i feel like if you were really profit driven there is a limit to how far crowdfunding could take you and um in, in in media i think um you know a new york times paywall model where it's not a guardian model where people, you know, people pay the guardian because they believe the guardian's journalism is important. People fund the New York Times so they can get the New York Times. Right. You know, maybe they think it's important as well, but but you're paying for a product that you can't get otherwise. Right. Um, and then, you know, the New York Times has a strong incentive to build out, you know, crosswords and, and recipes and things, you know, like they're, 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 that's fine. Um, that's probably a more lucrative model in the long run. You know, uh, I feel like we're more in the guardian stream of things where I would never want our crowdfunding to be uh, a minority, to be, you know, like the smallest way we get money. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's worked so well to keep us accountable to make sure that we actually are providing a valuable service to make sure that we're serving our, our supporters. Mm-hmm. So right now we're kind of at like a 50, 50 advertising, you know, and uh, crowdfunding balance. And I kind of only want to grow if we can maintain that. Like if advertising were 75%, then mm-hmm. I think that you're kind of more beholden to your advertisers than you are your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, literally you are. So, um, I'm really, you know, I'm not looking to grow a business and sell it. I'm looking to grow a business and then to practice my craft for the rest of my career. So, you know, uh, I, I definitely want to keep growing to the point where we can get a nicer office and we're not so cramped. I want to, you know, we've had like, you know, 15% raises for our staff every year for the past two years. But right. sadly, that's, 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 that sounds very generous, but that's just to get us to a point where we're giving right. – industry standard wages. We're, we're kind of just getting towards industry standard wages. I'd like to do better than industry st- standard wages. Um, so I'd like people here to do better and be able to really, you know, grow their families and have nice lives. But uh, am I looking for a media empire where we have offices in different cities? And I, I don't know. That sounds like a lot of hassle to maintain. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I know how that story usually ends. Too, if you're you know? starting again uh, with full knowledge of the funding options out there and the d- different business models that can or cannot work, would you have started with this patronage approach, like the crowdfunding approach, as you call it, or would you have gone the subscription route, uh, subscription route where you demand payment for uh, in return for the product? Oh, for what we're doing, uh, the the um, patronage is the way to go because people have told us explicitly, uh, I'm paying you 
so that 10 other people get this for free. I'm paying you to have an impact. If I were paying you for exclusive media that only your patrons could get, that only your subscribers could get, then you wouldn't be having an impact. And we have we have transformed the Canadian media. I mean, a lot of the labor abuses, a lot of the, I mean, you know, it was only because I was doing Canada land that a source brought me the Gian Gameshi story and that uncovered, um, sexual harassment and horrible practices at the CBC where I used to work. Right. And they, they, you know, that has uh, reformed the way that they deal with those issues. And that, you know, I, that there, there's a lot less of that being reported to us. And I mean, it wasn't just Gameshi. We were hearing all kinds of stories back then. I think it's a better place to work now than it used to be. The Globe and Mail addressed some of their gender inequity uh, issues because of us. The, the Canadian media, writ large uh, has, I think, more concern about being exposed as, as getting facts wrong than they used to or giving jobs to their buddies. And they, you know, like we, we've, we've had an impact beyond just giving interesting content to the 4,000 odd people who support us. So mm-hmm. uh, we've had patrons say, I will stop giving you money if you put Canada land behind a paywall. So for us, this was the right this was the right model, no question. Do you think it helped that you had that uh, period where it was just completely free? Oh yeah, there's no way, and and this is actually my my advice when uh, when young journalists are despairing for what am I going to do? There's no jobs. Like I I kind of feel like by accident I actually I I know the business model that works, and I'm surprised that that more people haven't haven't endeavored to repeat it. Uh, which isn't to say that everybody should be doing media criticism. I feel like. <laughs> I feel like, like, so here's my pedantic uh, speech to any journalism student. Um, what I say is f- the media is covering less stuff than it ever did because the industry has collapsed. So it's pretty easy to find something that isn't getting covered that should get covered. Find something that is being starved, where, 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 where the news reader is being starved. Uh, find some place where there's market failure and, and that you really care about. Find it, you know, that you would love to cover, that you're passionate about covering. And don't ask for anyone's permission. Just start covering it. Cover it on Twitter, cover it on Instagram, cover it on Medium, cover it in your podcast. Just cover it and and make it known that you are the person covering it. And, and don't be afraid to market yourself and be bold. Say, I am this country's only person looking at uh, covering the weed industry, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is. Uh, let it be known that you are covering this thing because it needs to be covered and give it away for free for a year. And the magic number is 10,000. If you have an audience of 10,000, 10,000 regular readers to your newsletter, 10,000 regular podcast uh, downloads, whatever, then that's 10,000 people who think that what you're doing is worthwhile and give yourself a year to hit 10,000. If you don't hit 10,000, then maybe you're not that good or the topic isn't that interesting. Maybe you miscalculated. But that's just a year. You've probably put like 20 years into your education already. So what's a year? <laughs> put a year into it. If, if you've got 10,000 at the end of that year, there's a very good chance that one out of 10 will give you $5 a month. So you say, I can't keep giving this away for free. I will only continue doing this if... I get $5 a month from a thousand people. If you're getting $5 a month from a thousand, you're getting $5,000 a month, that's $60,000 a year in Canada. Anyhow, that's actually a good salary for a young journalist. Congratulations. You're now a professional full-time employed journalist who's covering exactly what they want to cover and who has unprecedented independence running your own business. It's the one year plan to being an independent paid journalist in Canada. And I, I just can't believe like why people would do internship after internship rather than just right. practice the journalism, that, you know, you know, I, I feel like it's a no brainer. What do you think stopping people? I think that like me, there's a question of like, people want that um, institutional approval. They want, you know, sometimes it's young people saying, look, I'm not ready. I need to learn more. I need to go and work with older journal journalists, you know, but I think a lot of the time it's just this, like, you know, people want that recognition uh, from their field. They want some hiring person at CBC or at the Globe Mail to say, you are worthy, come intern for us. And they, and, you know, and they, like, even though they know the internship might, you know, they used to be unpaid, but we, we, we helped put a stop to that. So now they're just be poorly paid. Um, so even though they know I'm, I'm not going to get a lot of money, I'm not going to get a lot of responsibility and there's no job waiting for me. Like most of these internships do not lead to jobs. Even if you're great, mm-hmm. there's no chance of getting a job. People will accept those terms because they want to go and be, tell their parents, I'm a successful journalist. Your investment in me was not for in, in, in vain. I work at the Globe and Mail. So I think that that's fine. But at a certain point, you can't 
expect this industry to have a path for you. The path, it doesn't exist. The people who were able to scurry up that ladder were the last ones up the ladder. They kicked the ladder away. It's not even their fault. There is no ladder anymore. There's, the, the industry is in really rough shape, but you're in a much better position if you're an independent just starting out than if you are mid-career at a legacy newspaper. Like those people really have some some problems, you know, because uh, if, if, if it goes under, it's hard to start from all over again or from scratch. But if you're just starting out, you actually, the, the flaming collapse of the industry is your opportunity. It's not your problem. Right. And even even if uh, employment is your ultimate goal, then doing a year of coverage on a specific subject where you get known as the person covering that, even if you can't turn that into an independent business, and I think a lot of people do have a shot, then maybe there's someone willing to hire someone with that particular skill set. That's it. There's a parachute clause to this thing. I mean, or, or maybe you don't even have to choose. Like, let's say after a year, you don't hit the 10,000 mark, you hit the 5,000 mark. But now you are the most established uh, journalist in the country covering that very specific thing that you set out to cover. You're probably going to be the person who they invite onto the panel when they cover that topic. You're probably going to raise your profile. You're probably going to get offered a column or a piece here and there. And you might be able to put together a portfolio career where you're getting some money from from your, your patrons, from your supporters. And, and then, you know, or, or maybe you'll get that job that you so desperately wanted to begin with, but now you're a proven entity and you're coming with, with followers, right? Like when somebody applies for a job here, I'm very aware of like, do you have a few thousand friends who will read everything that you write for me? Or mm -hmm. cause we, we need, we, we're trying to grow our audience. So we're, we're very conscious of that. Maybe journalism schools should just like tack a year onto their degree programs. And that year is spent entirely focused on building a following around work on a specific subject. <laughs> yeah. Year, year five, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just want to make sure that journalism schools around the world get their cut from this. <laughs> um, so uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, about Bitstrips, which is uh, a bit of a, a, a sidestep from journalism, but a company you co-founded, I think, in, in the mid-2000s, like 2007, something like that, and uh, almost 10 years later, or about 10 years later, ended up selling to Snapchat for... Uh, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, I don't know. I've heard it reported as around about $64 million. Uh, can you tell me about that little part of your life? Oh, it was just the luckiest thing I ever happened to me really like, and, and again, you know, it, it had a little bit to do with, um, with humbling myself. It was, uh, I was in between contracts at the CBC. Like I had no idea if I would ever work there again. It was, you know, I think I've been like shown the door two or three times. And during one of those blacklisted periods, I was like at home depressed, not sure if I wanted to maintain a career in journalism or, or what. And, um, I just needed to get out of the house. And a friend of mine from high school, this brilliant guy named Jacob Blackstock, who I, I knew as Ba. We were both really interested in comic books in high school. And when I did that newspaper, I, I would publish his comic strips and punch. Um, he's just a really, a really brilliant guy who I, I looked up to um, when he was an older kid at, uh, at my high school. He was just starting his own animation studio uh, and I was unemployed. And so I knocked on his door and I, uh, I said, look, I just need to get out of the house. Like I'll volunteer. And he, uh, he accepted my free labor and... You know, I, I went from being a national radio host to being the guy who changes the lips on cartoon characters so that they <laughs> match the words that they're speaking. I was the least skilled person in the room. And uh, eventually he did uh, he, uh, uh, voluntarily pay me for my time, which was kind of him. But the biggest benefit of it was that I, I was just there when he came up with the idea for a social media app. At the time, it was a website that he was planning where anyone could make cartoons, regardless of uh, whether or not they knew how to draw. And... Um, like a lot of his ideas, I thought it was just brilliant and I wanted to be a part of it. And there were five of us who pooled our resources and we each put in money. And I think we were each uh, kind of offered uh, a piece of the company based on how much work we would be doing for it. And given that I was not one of the animators or one of the computer programmers, and given the fact that I eventually would go back to work as a journalist, um, I, I took a small a small piece of Bitstrips and, you know, uh, was involved in the development of it. To various degrees in the early years, probably most involved right at the beginning. And then later on when we were offering it as an educational app to schools, I was sort of the liaison with a bunch of teachers helping to develop it for the classroom. And that was really fun, actually. But really, it was the other four guys who did the heavy lifting and built this thing and spent 10 years uh, iterating and, you know, well, this isn't really making money on the web. So should we make a, f a Facebook app? Well, the Facebook app went viral, but the backlash was more viral than the, <laughs> than the, uh, 
you know, and it, 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 and then they then they turned it into Bitmoji, and then that took off like absolutely unprecedented, um, and that led to the acquisition from Snapchat. And by that time, I hadn't been. Uh, you know, working on it hands-on for years, but uh, still owned a small piece of the company. And, you know, it, it was a very lucky thing, very, very fortunate thing for me. It's a crazy story, but it sounds again like you humbled yourself uh, in between jobs here and took the, um, did the hard work and it ended up paying off in an unexpected way. I cannot claim that the uh, the benefit from Bitstrips is, is in any way equivalent to the work that I put in. It was, uh, <laughs> you know, Snap, we are Snapchat living you know, for the portable lips. That's it. It's it, you know, it, I, you you work in journalism. You can bust your ass to get a fifty dollar paycheck or a three hundred dollar paycheck on a piece that you maybe spent a month reporting. Or you know, how hard we fight here at Canadaland to build an audience that we sell to advertisers for you know not not such large sums of money. And then both as a tech reporter and given my experience as a tech entrepreneur, I watch millions of dollars change hands on like you know, the most trivial of things like, you know, you'll like 20 year olds getting, you know, $10 million venture cap capital rounds to, to, to pursue some fun game or some silly app. Uh, you know, m money is just like such an absurd concept at a certain point. Like you can work so hard and contribute something that you really believe in and, and lose money or, or, you know, there's, there's this other scenario where people are just drowning in excessive funds, um, Strange world, you know. It's it's one of the one of the things I've, I've I've seen from two sides, you know. Right, and and given that duality, and also given your experience with Canada Land, and this happening at a time when the media is in a state of absolutely uh, absolute freefall, especially the media business in Canada, uh, where does your um, optimism lie for the future of media, uh, if there's any optimism at all? I, I'm I'm very optimistic for journalism because I think that um, even before these problems that uh, Facebook and Google advertising brought to us and all the problems of fake news and all of these problems of trolls and everything else, we already had lost sight. And why I was so cynical and skeptical growing up in the 90s, why, why I had such a dim view and never wanted to be a reporter is because I think that journalism lost sight of its first principles and its focus. And it became about rewriting press releases and it became about service journalism where you're on the take from the same, you know, uh, vacation chain that you're writing about. Uh, we, we, we forgot about our reader's interest and we forgot about our, our commitment to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable and to tell big truths. And the optimism I have now is that with the technological upheaval, the only kind of journalism that people are willing to pay for is that kind of first principle journalism. And the beneficiaries of, you know, the Trump bump or whatever you want to call it, the people who are willing to open up their wallets are, the, are, are, are doing so for news organizations that are not, you know, because I've got a crossword. It's because if I don't tell you the truth, who will? And I think it's 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 really weeding. A lot of people are leaving the industry. A lot of good people are leaving the industry. But those who are left are the ones who are most. You know, we're we're, we're putting a new premium on enterprise reporting, deep dive, investigative reporting. Uh, speaking truth to power is valuable, and if it's valuable, people will pay for it. And we are maybe it took this for us to rediscover that. Well, I think that's a great, inspiring note to finish on. So thanks very much for taking the time to join us. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for your interest.